Welcome to Participate. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On this week's podcast, we'll ask Julie to get into the weeds again when we ask her about calls to action. Right. Our guest this week is Karina Angelou. We're excited you're here. Let's go. Hi, Julie. Hi, Mike. So CTA is an acronym that may not be recognizable to a lot of people, but it's really important in our space for sure. Mm -hmm. It's a call to action. So let's talk about it. And it's a big marketing term. Marketers would use this term and be familiar with this term. But um, when you're building a community and asking people for things or to do things, this is this is, you know, this is an important term. So let's talk about what a call to action is and how, if, and why people respond to them and a little bit about how that relates to a community of practice. I think it's a very good question. A, CTA is regarding, you know, when it's about marketing. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of literature in the marketing field about what are the CTAs that sort of grab people, what do they tend to do, what what interests them. I think framing it for us in a community of practice, I think it relates to the sustained nature of communities of practice in order to make them work. So I feel that calls to action in this particular case is A, understanding like what is going to be a value to folks in a community of practice, really understanding that in terms of the audience, who you're trying to bring in. So what's that immediate value piece? And I think framing a call to action or a CTA around that. Then the ultimate goal, which is the impact on practice. What's the long view, right? And I think we'll, I, I anticipate we'll be getting into this with Karina, which is that building trust, like bringing different types of people in, building um, towards real systemic change. That's a big call to action, right? I mean, right now, you know, I'm so looking forward to this conversation because systemic change is a huge call to action, right? Um, so what are the, what are the pieces, what are the individual calls to action to really build towards that larger goal of impact, I think is how I think about it. It's funny though, every, you know, every day we post on Twitter, mm -hmm. we share things in communities, um, and our partners share things in communities and almost always there is some sort of call to action involved. It's, you know, read this, watch this, look at this later, listen to this really awesome podcast um tons of small call to actions and i'm i'm curious um only because i think it's something that people listening to this might relate to and that's the struggle with you know response to a call to action and you know the idea that you know just because you say or you want people to do something doesn't mean they're necessarily going to right. actually actually do it Right. And I'm wondering how we how we coach our partners, how to build a good call to action that people actually want to respond to. And, and I think if we're being authentic about it with the communities of, of practices, really like when when you're bringing people into the community, it is it is truly is this a shared space where we are peers? Is this sort of a top down? Like, I think the structure of the community really has to be understood. And to me, if it's a call to action in a community of practice would, where you want to really have a shared space of knowledge creation, you need to sort of have, again, I think that initial calls to action related to how you're going to build trust in the community. So the calls to action in terms of, again, that sort of bonding 
strategies, um, resources that are meaningful for folks, and then really having those entry points in where people can feel really open to contribute in the ways that are comfortable for them. Um, but I think truly noting, knowing who is in your community or who you want to reach is has got to be the first thing. And I think I'm sure that's true even, even for f people that are purely doing this for marketing. But I think when we work with our partners, certainly at Participate, that's really what we're going for, which is like, what's your organizational goal? Why are you thinking a community practice is the right framework for the work that you want to do? But having a very clear goal in mind and then building those call to actions sort of within right. that framework. Yeah. Making sure that, you know, the shared interest is there mm -hmm. first. Yeah. Because if the shared interest is there first and your call to actions are related to that shared interest, yep. then the likelihood of them responding to the call to action based on shared interest yep. is higher. Yep. You know, what's funny is that that doesn't seem that seems like common sense. Yet, you know, we see so many times a lack of response in some cases. And I think it is a good lesson in ensuring that you know your community, you know your people, you know your audience, um, and and you know um, what you're trying to build and why you're trying to build it. I think having that vision, yeah, having that vision in mind, and and know, yeah, there are going to be some CTAs where you may hear crickets, right, or you know, you may really kind of also um, revolving that responsibility. So it's not always one person sort of blasting out because that doesn't feel like a call to action to community build. So you are going to be trying different strategies to really, um, you know, basically put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> like I think some people are like, yeah, we want to build community, but it's, it's, it's sometimes inauthentic. And I think sometimes CTAs can come across that way because again, people are getting blasted all kinds of things. Um, so it's, it's really that intentionality and that we are really here for a shared purpose and making sure that's communicated really right at the get go. What a great answer. That was great. Thank you, Julie. Uh, I think I think that that was an awesome answer. These are fun. Yeah, totally. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk to Karina Angelus. So stay with us. Welcome back to the podcast. Karina Angelou is a design strategist, researcher, and facilitator in pursuit of ways to foster systemic change and perpetually curious about the role cities can play in enabling this. We're excited to talk to her about how communities of practice can be a catalyst for change. One of the things we've been reading about your work is this Medium article, and we're going to put a lot of Karina's work in the show notes because it's absolutely fantastic. It's why we reached out to you to to talk here today. Um, maybe reflect on what led you to you know your research. Take a deeper dive into that for us, and maybe touch on that blog article a little bit. Yeah, completely. Well, um, you know, when I started my research, um, one of the sort of one of the key things that I had to do was to almost kind of understand who is the audience for my research. Um, so who am I trying to address? And in my research, I'm kind of looking at the role of communities of practice in really kind of spanning these gaps that exist between researchers, between practitioners and between policymakers. So um, I'm already kind of wearing two of these hats. So I'm a researcher, I'm a practitioner, but one of the things that I've not had much experience of was what does what is it like to be a policymaker? 
So I thought um, actually a good way to learn would be uh, to attend the COP, so to attend the Conference of Parties. So this is a yearly gathering. It's been going on for, what, over 25 years now? Um, and it's the yearly gathering where, you know, all the policymakers kind of get together, all the different nation states, um, to really try and understand what actually, how can we make progress on climate change? What does that look like in terms of collaboration for climate action? Um, you know, all the sort of all the glossy uh, sort of descriptions that you might read and kind of think, wow, that sounds like a great place to go. So, you know, I kind of embarked kind of thinking, OK, it might be more obviously it will be more on the formal side. And, you know, there's negotiations happening and you kind of get all the sort of um you know, all the sort of stereotypes that you might imagine from watching a film. Um, but what I was really, really floored by was actually how much of the conversations were almost kind of completely path dependent on the type of um, almost kind of like diplomacy um, that was happening during the Cold War. So there's something really, really fascinating in terms of even just the social norms and, you know, like all the juicy conversations that obviously you don't have access to as an observer, but all the juicy conversations happening on the sidelines and hearing about WhatsApp groups and hearing about um, who and who are meeting late at night over dinner to discuss something or, you know, and, 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 we're, and these are big decisions, right? So here we're talking about uh, nations and nationwide commitments and global commitments to carbon um, emission reductions. So it's not your, uh, the sort of the stakes are really, really high. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, wow, actually, you guys have the right acronym. So what if from a conference of parties, like how, how would you reimagine this as a community of practice? Because essentially, you know, if you look at the textbook definition of a community of practice, that's what these people, that's what this sort of gathering should actually stimulate, that you kind of have people working um, in different shared domains on a practice, right? So um, obviously there's a, there's a big process to actually define what we mean. So are people kind of working in mitigation or in adaptation or people working on cities or people working on um, manufacturing or all the sort of topics? But within that... Um, you could really see how this gathering could really be the sort of the meeting point where you make progress um, across uh, different disciplines, across different sectors um, on these key issues. And I kind of thought, what a wasted opportunity, right? So it kind of feels like you, you've got you've got 25,000 people flying into one place on the globe, which is mind blowing, you know, just as a stat, right? Um, you know, you're catering for thousands. You've got all these people um, staying in a city for two weeks. So what what an immense waste uh, to not kind of deploy that to really kind of design it as an experience and really kind of understand um, who are the different communities and, and what are they here for, rather than just the sort of almost kind of like a style of policymaking that feels so outdated and a really siloed experience it seems right and i mean that's what i'm that's what i'm experiencing with like i'm trying to really bring together a bunch of game-based learning groups and it just seems like they all just want to do their own little thing instead of collaborating and that makes it tough to make anything happen in some ways yeah and one thing karina that you said um you know, in a prior life, I did a lot of um, political science work. And I think the path dependency is really a whole kind of theoretical framework for policymaking. And I think it's very interesting. So I think my question is, again, as usual, going off script is when you have path dependency, people who have come together, made policy, have been in positions of power, 
right? Something that really struck me about that Medium article is like, what happened when this groundswell of activists showed up, right? So I guess my question is, how do you think a community of practice framework can allow for that influx to kind of act as disruptors and then move that community of practice forward to really have impact, right? As opposed to how they're used to doing it, this path dependency, these are the people, this is the way we talk, this is the way we do things, but you have this sort of urgency, um, which we have around climate. So, you know, do you feel like the community practice framework has that opening for these actors to come in and sort of push the field forward? Completely, because I think what communities of practice do, it's almost like, it takes you away from that um, polarizing, um, you know, dynamic where you kind of have the policymakers and all the formal UN staff and and all the people who are there for the negotiations, and the polarization that happens when you then have the activists on the other side, right? So they're trying to bring in uh, to the forefront of the negotiations actually that these challenges are very real the struggles are very real there's a lot of grief um, there's a lot of loss already that's happening and they are bearing the consequences of climate change already so I think there's there's a power that comes from that embodiment mm -hmm. but I also think it's completely unfair that on top of everything else that that they then get used uh, you know in press releases in the media all of this so I think there is that dynamic and I think I'm just kind of coming at this challenge from a community of practice framework would mean that actually we're looking at how do we work with conflict how do we work with tensions but um, at the same time with a commitment for a shared goal. Um, and I think that's something that doesn't really get acknowledged in that process, the fact that there is perhaps a, an underlying shared goal, but that actually probably the hows are very different, mm -hmm. you know, like policymakers probably think, well, you know, that's not how policy gets changed. Activists probably think, oh, but that's not how real change happens. And, and you know, so I think everyone comes at this process with their own theory of change in a way and, and how things happen. And I think it's important to create that space for different communities to come together to really think, well, how do we, um, almost kind of like, how do we understand the trade-offs? Because it'll probably never be 100% what policymakers want or politicians even, and it won't always be what activists want um, or uh, what movement leaders want. So I think that's where it's almost like creating that space. Um, but, you know, as I left, I was packing my suitcase and I was kind of thinking, wow, like you would really have to redesign the whole thing. Um, and almost kind of because I think what's quite the beauty of communities of practice is that almost kind of the, the boundary is self-defined, right? So the community gets to decide uh, what the scope is. And obviously that's not the case. Um, so um, you don't really have that acknowledgement that the people who are there get to decide or almost kind of define the agenda. And I think that's where that path dependency really kind of um, shows its limitations in that it's probably good for some things. Um, you know, it's good because you do need institutional memory in some ways. But on the other hand, it doesn't really allow for some of the realities. And, and also it doesn't really allow for the, you know, the emotional and almost kind of like the psychological um, aspect of it to really kind of... Um, you know, sit in, in those negotiation rooms. So that's where you kind of see people disrupting the process. But that's because if you ignore things for too long, then they will bubble up, you know, they will rise to the surface. So like any tension and, and um, you know, conflict, it will rise up. Yeah, we're certainly seeing this certainly on the side of the pond. And I'm sure you're seeing it on yours as well. 
Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, again, that this brings up is, um, and this was in this other um, piece that you wrote around, you know, the ability for a community of practice um, to really upset, again, this idea of knowledge transfer, right? There are these sort of experts, they transfer, I mean, the ways that community of practice kind of necessitates on this sort of, again, you're you know, that's the, the, the sort of social theories of learning, right? And sort of knowledge creation, co-construction. Um, and you wrote that really beautifully in the August piece. Can you talk more about learning experience design in that? You know, how do you bring together folks mm. when those power dynamics potentially are in play to really kind of, you know, have a shared construction of knowledge? And I think, and, and you know, I, I will say from the beginning that I don't think that I have the answer or the solution. And I think, but, you know, reflecting back on almost kind of like how I came to be an architect, I think what's quite interesting there is like there's a lot of learning by doing, but there's also this almost kind of like master-apprentice dynamic. Like you kind of learn in the context of um, the tutors that teach you when you learn from other architects, but it is still, um, you know, almost kind of like that knowledge transfer is still... It, it still implies that you have someone with a lot of experience transferring um, that knowledge to someone like a novice or someone starting. Um, and I think what's been quite interesting and really exciting in my work in the past few years was actually to really start turning that concept on its head and really kind of say, well, what happens when you kind of go beyond that and you kind of acknowledge that actually um, different people, different perspectives, different positionalities have different things to offer and different types of knowledge that can be um, that can be explored and, and learned from. And I think that's also something that in the context of, you know, the past couple of years, I think we've really seen almost kind of like the youth um, activism and Fridays for Future, like actually, like there's so much to learn, even though that kind of... Um, turns the traditional dynamic of, you know, they're young people, what do they know? Like, what do teenagers know about the real world of climate action? So I think there's been something quite beautiful as well, also in terms of like how the public discourse has been changing and actually acknowledging that if we're to be accountable to the future generations, then then we have lots to learn from them as well as vice versa. And I think that can be applied, you know, not just um, in terms of age and generations, but I think that can also be applied in terms of domains, in terms of um, sectors, in terms of types of work as well. Like there's so much exchange to be happened. But I think we really, I think, again, for that, we kind of need to accept that the process of learning is a social process. And I think sometimes so much of our education system is, is not geared to that and, and is not um, kind of designed with that principle at its core. So I think that that's that's the hard bit that comes Um and I think as well in my research, that's what I'm kind of finding. So um, working with this, um, you know, emerging community of practice, I would call it um, working on urban resilience. Yeah. So um, and I think that's where it's interesting to almost kind of also follow the development of a community of practice. It's like an intentional community of practice. And then to kind of see actually like what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, what's easy and what's hard. Um especially in the context of a year like 2020. Yeah, um, so yeah it's been a ride. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think something that is inherent in what you're, or I think implicit in what you're saying is around sort of trust building. Because I, I do think, at least in our experience, building, you know, online communities of practice really take a fair amount of work. And it takes a, a work, a shared work. Um, and that's hard to do without sort of relationships and trust and 
curious about that as you're seeing that urban resilience work. And, you know, you have two urbanites here. Yeah, I'm a native of New York City and now live in North Carolina. But um, and I remember reading, uh, you know, just theories around Jane Jacobs, you know, like when I was in school and these very different views of cities and how they're built and what they're about. And I'm just curious about the sort of relationships and trust building within this particular, in the urban resilience community practice and, and how you see that. I think um, one of my favorite quotes, and I, I can't even, it's kind of, it's one of those things that kind of does the rounds and people just say, and no one knows who said it mm-hmm. first. Um, but someone once said um, in the context of a workshop that uh, we can only move at the speed of trust. Um, and I think that's so real because um, I think it's really, you know, you can kind of like if you don't have the if you don't have trust as a foundation, it's really, really hard to kind of um, get people to show up in their authenticity. Um, and I think that's quite hard because then kind of people come and say and they kind of, you know, they participate, but almost kind of in a very sort of superficial way. So they kind of come and, and toe the line of either their organization or whatever agenda is kind of driving them. But I think once you kind of establish that trusted relationship, that's when you can start cracking some of the complex issues that are sitting underneath. Um, and I think there's lots of ingredients that kind of help that. A lot of the times it is. So for us, what's been quite interesting is like we've had a bit of um, almost kind of like an initiation experience. So the the community um, kind of came about as a consequence of um, a summer school for practitioners, researchers and policymakers. And it's one of those things that when you have almost kind of like a shared container um, that, you know, you have an intentional space to kind of design and invite people into. And I think um, for the one that we ran this year, actually, one of the criteria that we kind of put down is like, actually, can we foster trust? And um, what would it look like to design um, with this in mind? Um, and I think this really shapes and, and there may be subtle things, but it really shapes the design of how you run Um, a workshop of how you run a course of how you think about capacity building um, and and you kind of end up with a very different experience and that again and especially this year what's been quite interesting that in the context of the of the pandemic as it's been online um, and and people were dialing in from 14 different time zones so it was kind of ridiculous (laughs) in terms of the time difference of where people were at some people were having dinner some people were putting their kids to bed some people were just getting up Um, And I think it's been really interesting to kind of see actually that if you kind of center trust, that then commitment will follow. Um, And actually, that's one of the things that's kind of keeping the community ticking, even if sometimes we don't necessarily just discuss work. That's I think trust is the key ingredient, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's an easy one to to build, especially when. So I think that's the trade off. I think if you want to work. Um, or, or cultivate communities of practice across organizations. Um, I think one of the big challenges in building trust is like actually a lot of the times, you know, obviously people will represent the organizations that they come from. So you're not just kind of having to navigate um the personal dynamics but you're having to navigate the inter-organizational politics yeah. so you know who plays with who and um who goes along with who and who doesn't want to collaborate with whom and 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 almost kind of like that la- added layer of of structure and and dynamics that you kind of have to um almost um design for because it's there and i think that's exactly right i mean just knowing that that's in play you know, building that into the design of it, you know, knowing that people are going to have turf, knowing that 
you know, people feeling like they have, you know, proprietary knowledge about X, Y, and Z. So I think when you see that cross-disciplinary collaboration, you know, just know that those pieces are there and like designing for that. Yeah. And also knowing that different people in different organizations are driven by very different incentives and very different success definitions. So I think that's the, perhaps another challenge, but also perhaps another opportunity for, um, you know, cross organizational communities of practice. Um, like you kind of having, like, if you're thinking about researchers or academics, you know, they're kind of, their measures of success are publication numbers, uh, impact factors for journals, conference papers, books, all of that. Um, actually, they work on a very different time scale compared to practitioners who are driven by, you know, the immediate, you know, getting stuff out there in the world yesterday. Um, project timelines. So I think that's when you start having a bit of, um, you know, difficulty in terms of what people want to do and what people want to collaborate on. My last question right now is because you mentioned about ecosystem learning goals, which I really loved and I'm like obsessed with this idea. So can you talk a little bit about when you have that sort of different measurements of impact, right? And that may be, you may be beholden to an institution or your career goals or whatever it is. You know, how, how do you sort of negotiate that and then also kind of um, surface an ecosystem learning goal that would take all of those individual pieces into account? That is the golden question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess where I come at it from is almost kind of thinking, well, actually, you know, if we look at the community of practice that um, is emerging from this urban resilience summer school, um, what's quite interesting is like, you know, you have all the, so the the host of the summer school is the University of Southern Denmark. Um, I joined as a program designer and program facilitator. And what's been quite interesting has been this conversation around, well, what do we mean by success? Um, what does impact look like? And you kind of have, you know, all your traditional indicators around, well, the number of alumni and how many summer schools do you run and how many people stay in touch after and blah, blah, blah. But actually, um, what I started thinking was, well, if the outcome that you're hoping to um, foster is around supporting communities of practice, then surely there's something in there in terms of impact around, um, you know, how many collaborations have emerged a year after the summer school or a year after this learning experience? Um, how many people are um, working on different things that are perhaps even outside the topic of urban resilience? You know, how many of the alumni are bringing their own organisations on the journey so they might be saying well actually this might be useful for my colleagues or this might be an interesting you know learning experience for my team so I think it's about kind of thinking through like what are those impacts at a wider um almost kind of like more almost kind of like expanding one circle out in terms of the usual sort of indicators for impact because obviously you still have you know like your metrics and and all of that but also there's something about the quality and the depth of relationships um, that is very much a qualitative sort of indicator as much as, you know, everyone would like to quantify these things and, and metrics are driving the world. But some things really need qualitative um, research to kind of look into it. So I've been to a lot of conferences in my life, Julie. I mean, I'm sure actually all three of us have. Um, and, and I certainly spend a lot of time reflecting on the nature of the conference and, you know, and stuff like that. So going back to, uh, again, this, this, um, medium article on the conference of parties, 
I'm sure that you spent at least a little bit of time, not just reflecting on, you know, the idea that it should be better, but what you may actually do if you were doing it better. And so my question is, you know, how would you recommend systems or organizations adopt community a practice approach? What do you think they need to be mindful of, you know, as they build this out? And, you know, what would you have done if you were doing it differently? If we were reimagining the way that we connect people um, in your field in particular, you know, how might you go about doing that? I would do so many things differently. But I think that's where, you know, I'm it's excited almost... <laughs> to hear about all of them. It's almost where um, if you're a learning facilitator and any type of facilitation, actually, I think you kind of end up being a bit of an event organizer as well and a bit of an event designer as no. well. Uh, so you know you learn you learn a lot of things it's almost kind of like there's different levels at which you can do things differently so you can do it in terms of the logistics uh you know like what's the what's the prep that people need to do what do they need to know to be able to show up um what's the space like what's the food like like there was something that was there was something ridiculous at, at cop 25 because um it was uh, moved uh, with very short notice. It was supposed to take place in Chile, but it took place in Madrid in the end. So they had to, you know, like find uh, logistics for 25,000 people, which is, you know, it's a big conference. Um, so the funniest thing was that actually you had, you only had fast food inside. And we kind of thought, wow, look at here, you know, the whole community working on climate action, we're all just eating burgers from wherever. And you kind of think, isn't that ironic? Like actually, how would you design this as an intention? exercise to actually kind of model some of the outcomes that we want to achieve like if we're saying that we need more of a plant-based diet well why don't we give people you know nutritious tasty fresh locally sourced support small businesses etc so you know these are the sort of like but these are just logistics right and then you kind of move into the actual event design of like how do you then um almost kind of like how do you find that um divergence and convergence almost and, and how do you work with the energy um, that the different phases bring and you might need different you know there's two weeks to play with um, a lot of conferences are a lot shorter but then what would it mean to actually uh, be a bit intentional about this to kind of understand well here is where we need to expand out and really kind of understand the diversity of worldviews the diversity of opinions of possible solutions and here is when we need to converge we need to make some decisions time's running out, uh, what are we committing to? Um, and, and almost kind of use these as kind of like broad handrails to kind of help you design then what's the what's the goal for each of the day and what does that look like? Um, and then you kind of have the layer of actually of community building and, and especially communities of practice. So I actually think that in many ways, um, you know, the yearly in-person get-together shouldn't be the only um, touch point. Like, this should be, you know, like a, the big, almost kind of like in-person retreat, if if you had it that way. Uh, but then actually this needs, you need, communities of practice need support and sustainment and facilitation throughout. So you can't just expect that you bunch thousands of people together and they're just going to play. Um, and you know that you're not going to have um, any issues in that process. So I think there's something about like, how do you design this um, as a longer rhythm? Um, what does that look like in terms of who are the different communities? Because, you know, in a thousand people event, you will have lots of different communities. Um 
And that's a great thing, you know. Then it's the question of like, how do you then feed back? What's the learning mechanism? Um, and also, you know, it's, it's also the technical side of things. Like actually, it's pretty hard uh, to work when you don't really have the collaborative platforms in place and when you don't necessarily, you know, when even just the internet at the venue is not that great. So I think it's almost kind of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff that enables, um, but these are just enablers, right? They're not, uh, it all kind of rests on how do you then facilitate, how do you bring people together and and, and how do you even go about identifying um, and, and cultivating these communities through time rather than just say, oh, we have a conference, we need to build community. Because I think that's one of those things that I hear quite a lot. And it's always, that's when community is always an afterthought. And then it's just, it just, it's just the stuff that happens spontaneously because you meet someone in the queue for coffee and you kind of have a moan about the coffee, you know, and then you end up chatting a bit more and you realise that you have some work in common. Um, But that's not intentional design. And I think this is where something like communities of practice can Mm -hmm. really support with that. This conversation is an awesome reminder that building communities of practice when done intentionally is actually complicated and has depth and complexity that a lot of people don't realize, but can be incredibly rewarding and meaningful and can have huge impact on on the way we live, which is exciting. And it's why we're doing this. Um, Karina, how can our audience members connect with you? How can they learn more about you and your work? Where can we send them to find out more about your research and what you do. I'm on Twitter. So because my uh, surname is impossible to spell, I've actually chosen an easier handle. So I'm Futures Forensic on Twitter. Um, And from there, there's a whole suite of of links that will send you to my work in various places, either websites or on Medium or on Instagram, etc. (laughs) Multi-platform. But that is probably a good port of call. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Karina Anglu. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And I hope this is the beginning of many conversations because I have like a whole bunch of other things around building them online and how you do that. So likewise, hopefully this will be the first of many conversations. So thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. Thank you so much for the invite. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is the great Mike Washburn. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at, at participate. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found there at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.